Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. The content of CME to go podcasts do not relate to any product of a commercial interest. Therefore, there are no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Hi there. I'm Yvonne Moonkun, TMA's Quality Practice Management Consultant and regular contributor to TMA Practice Well Podcast. I have spent the entirety of my adult life in healthcare as a registered nurse, counselor, and now a quality consultant with TMA. I am passionate about facilitating a healthy Texas by supporting the physicians who live and serve the communities throughout our amazing state. I hope you find inspiration and guidance in this episode. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit textmed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. Hello and welcome. On today's podcast, we will talk about COVID-19's acceleration of the shift to value-based care in our first recession since the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. The economic impact of COVID-19 has been globally astronomic. Healthcare has often been considered recession-proof for the most part, but it is definitely not coronavirus-proof. According to an MGMA survey completed in April 2020, about 97% of practices have experienced some type of negative financial impact due to COVID-19, highlighting some of the crucial flaws in our traditional fee-for-service business model. Value-based care as a business model and care delivery model has been mentioned frequently in many recent publications as having weathered the COVID-19 storm with little difficulty. According to Adam Bowler, CEO of U.S. International Development Finance Corporation and previously the director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, risk-based organizations have not experienced negative financial impact as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. This has been echoed by several others involved in healthcare care economics around the country, Brad Smith, the current director for uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, during a webinar on May 21st of this year, said, 
I think we're only going to double down on our commitment to value-based care based on what we've seen in the public health emergency. Right now, less than 20% of Medicare spending is value-based, but CMS has made it clear that they want closer to 100% of spending to be value-based. And it's not just CMS. Employers and commercial health plans are also driving the shift from fee-for-service, which in effect rewards quantity, to value-based care models focusing on quality. Embracing this change isn't really a choice. CMS aims to have 100% of Medicare providers in two-sided risk arrangements by 2025. CMS wants half of Medicaid and commercial contracts to be in value-based reimbursement models by 2025. Now, to achieve this goal, the entire U.S. healthcare system will need to change the payment structure to focus on incentivizing quality health outcomes. This will require a paradigm shift, a, a fundamental change in how we organize, deliver, and pay for health care. In order to be successful, physicians will need to have a deep understanding of value-based programs, the opportunities for revenue growth, and the risk of loss. At its most basic, the value-based care business model incorporates quality with reimbursement, resulting in a model that essentially pays on a per-member, per-month basis or per-episode of care, paid by commercial, commercial or government payers, allowing for enhanced services and more meaningful time with patients. Participating providers delivering efficient care and meeting quality measures may significantly increase their revenue through performance-related bonus payments. Value-based care, or VBC for short, is not a new concept. You may have heard it referred uh, to as uh, at-risk or partial risk plans, value-based performance, value-based medicine, pay for performance, lots of different terminology being thrown around out there. In today's podcast, I'm going to make a valiant effort to clarify terminology and provide a primer of sorts on value-based care, uh, the fundamentals, what it is, how it works, and all that associated terminology. It is difficult to have a meaningful discussion if we are assigning different meanings to the same term. So I will begin with defining value-based care and then the other terms that are used to refer to it just to make sure we are all on the same page and using the same definition. According to the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, and I quote, value-based healthcare is a healthcare delivery model in which providers, including hospitals and physicians, are paid based on patient health outcomes. Under value-based care agreements, providers are rewarded for helping patients improve their health, reduce the effects and incidence of chronic disease, and live healthy lives in an evidence-based way. The value comes from measuring health outcomes against the cost of care delivery. CMS refers to these models as value-based programs and defines them in this way. Programs that reward healthcare providers with incentive payments for the quality of care they give to people with Medicare. Further stating that the programs are part of their larger quality strategy to reform healthcare delivery and payment, and these programs support their three-part aim, which is, number one, better care for individuals, Number two, better health for populations. And number three, lower cost. 
So let's go over some of the key terms. Fee-for-service, this is our traditional model of payment wherein physicians and other healthcare providers are reimbursed by the total number of services they provide. Um, basically, you provide and get paid for an exam, an injection, or an x-ray. Now, shared savings is a payment strategy that offers incentives for providers to reduce healthcare spending for a defined patient population by offering them a percentage of any net savings realized as a result of their efforts. This type of arrangement generally requires an organization to be paid using the traditional fee-for-service model, but then at the end of the year, total spending is compared with a target. If the organization's spending falls below the target, it can share some of the difference as a bonus. Or if patients have better than average quality outcomes, the provider receives a bonus or increased payment. Now risk means that providers must live within the target expense level and aggregate capitation payments or face financial losses. Greater financial rewards are available to providers who perform well under risk-based models and bear financial risk. I'll talk a little bit more about this idea of risk. So risk adjustment. Now this refers to the practice of accounting for the differences in the underlying risk i.e. expected costs of patient populations. This is important because it would be unfair to compare costs incurred for a healthy member to that of a sick member without properly adjusting for the expected cost of each person based on his or her health status. And we talk about upside risk. These models allow providers to share in healthcare savings if their services make care delivery more efficient. Payment models in which the provider receives a bonus if its patients have better than average quality cost outcomes. Now this is different from downside risk, um, which uh, these models require providers to refund a payer if the actual care costs exceed financial benchmarks. Payment models in which the provider is responsible for making up payment shortfalls if its patients fail to have better than average quality cost outcomes. So let's talk about shared risk. This is referred to as risk distribution or downside risk. And this is where two or more participants in an organization or other enterprise share the financial consequences of a given risk. Providers must cover part or all of the healthcare costs if they're unable to keep costs lower than the set benchmarks. As a complement to shared savings, if an organization spends more than the target, it must repay some of the difference as a penalty. Or, if patients fail to have better than average quality outcomes, the provider receives a lower payment. However, participants in financial risk contracts generally have a greater opportunity to share in potential savings compared to a shared savings only arrangement. So when you hear them talk about as one-sided, that's the upside financial risk only. And again, that's where um, you know, your, your patients have better than average quality cost outcomes, so you receive a, a bonus on, on uh, shared savings, on healthcare savings. Two-sided would be both upside and downside financial risk. And this would be a situation in which um, the provider 
would benefit from uh, the upside piece with, if the, the quality measures exceeded expectation, you'd get that bonus. However, if your spending was above the benchmark, um, you might have to pay that difference back. Um, so it's two-sided, both upside and downside financial risk. The capitation models. Uh, these capitation models uh, pay providers a fixed amount per patient per unit of time which is reimbursed prospectively to the provider for furnishing a set of services or all services. If a provider produces healthcare savings, then he retains all of the payment. Uh, but if he cannot reduce costs below the payment amount, then uh, he or she is fully responsible for the loss in revenue. Most capitation models also include value-based incentive payments and penalties based on quality and cost performance. Now, providers may benefit from capitation models because the reimbursements are prepaid. And since revenue is already in the provider's hands, organizations can invest in innovations that improve patient care um, and, and create a more cost-efficient environment. Now, <clears throat> you can have partial capitation or blended capitation agreements. Um, and these pay providers a single monthly fee that covers a set of services furnished to a patient such as laboratory services or primary care, and then all the other cares reimbursed using a fee-for-service model. In global capitation, providers are reimbursed with a single fixed payment for all the healthcare services given to a patient, including primary care, hospitalizations, and specialist care. An organization receives a per-person per-month payment intended to pay for all attributed individual's care regardless of which services they use. We're going to talk about attribution a little bit later. Bundled payments. Under a bundled payment structure, providers are paid a fixed amount for all the services performed to treat a patient during an episode of care, such as a specific condition like bypass surgery or knee replacement, uh, or a defined period of time, 90 days from the encounter initiation. Um, instead of paying separately for hospital, physician, and other services, payments for services linked to a particular condition <clears throat> for a reason for a hospital stay and in, in a period of time are grouped together. Providers can keep the money they save through reduced spending on some components of care included in the bundle. So if you're providing care efficiently and you're avoiding rehospitalization, things of that nature, all of that ends up saving money, uh, reducing that spending, which then translates into revenue. If providers involved in the patient's episode of care are able to deliver treatment for less than the set reimbursement amount, they can keep that portion of the difference depending on their contract with the payer. However, if healthcare costs exceed the set amount, providers lose out on the revenue they would have received from a, tradi a traditional payment structure. Pay for performance or P4P. It still utilizes a more traditional fee for service system, but then ties reimbursement to metric-driven outcomes, best practices, and patient satisfaction. It's a, a nudge towards transitioning to value-based care. It's a good starting point for uh, a practice that is um, just, you know, starting that transition from fee-for-service to, fee to value-based care as well. Quality measures. According to CMS, these are tools that help us measure 
or quantify healthcare processes, outcomes, patient perceptions, and organizational structure and or systems that are associated with the ability to provide high quality healthcare and or that relate to one of uh, more quality goals for healthcare. There are three types of quality measures, structural measures. These um, uh, refer to uh, healthcare providers capacity systems and processes like using an EMR or the ratio of providers to patients. Process measures indicate what a provider does to maintain or improve health, either for um, healthy people or for those diagnosed with a healthcare condition, like percentage of people who receive preventative services. Who gets their flu shot every year? How many people in your practice get the flu shot every year? Outcome measures reflect the impact of healthcare services or interventions on the health status of a patient. <clears throat> um, like percentage of diabetic patients in your practice with an A1C under 7.0. And we get all of this information from our healthcare data, right? Patient information collected from various sources. Um, it might be administrative data, which is gathered from claims, encounter, uh, encounters, enrollment, and uh, provider systems, which include data elements like type of service, number of units, like days of service, diagnoses and procedural codes for clinical services, location of service, amount billed, and amount reimbursed. Patient medical records provide clinical data related to a patient's medical history and care. Patient surveys are self-reported information from patients about their healthcare experiences, including reports on care, service, or treatment received, and patient perceptions of the outcomes of care. So we also talk about interoperability. This has been a huge issue um, across healthcare industry, which is uh, quite incredible considering the amount of technology out there in the world. Um, this refers to the ability of health information systems to work together within and across organizational boundaries in order to advance the effective delivery of healthcare for individuals and communities. This is the HIMSS 2013 definition. Basically, this refers to software and computing operating systems that are able to communicate with one another, a free flow of digital information from one provider to another, which is important for care coordination, which is the, the uh, deliberate organization of patient care activities between two or more participants, including the patient involved in patient's care, to facilitate the appropriate delivery of healthcare services. Organizing care involves the marshalling of personnel and other resources needed to carry out all required patient care activities and is often managed by the exchange of information among participants responsible for different aspects of care. <clears throat> One of the places that you'll see um, care coordination as um, a, a huge focus is in um, patient-centered medical homes, PCMH. Um, this is a team-based model of care, typically led by a primary care physician who is focused on the whole person and provides continuous, coordinated, integrated, and evidence-based care. Physicians may receive additional payments, uh, for example, care coordination and uh, performance-based incentives on top of fee-for-service payments in uh, a patient-centered medical home environment.
There are a couple of other types of um, programs that CMS has developed. There are tons of them now. I'm just going to highlight a couple. The CMS Bundled Payment Care Improvement. This is an initiative for organizations to be paid under bundles for specific procedures uh, or conditions. The first program um, is for joint replacement. Um, after the first level of the program, participants are required to participate with gradually increasing levels of downside risk. So um, this is one of the first ones I started several years back. Um, the Medicare Comprehensive Joint Replacement Program. This is a mandatory bundled payment model for lower extremity joint replacement services in select geographic areas. So you have to uh, actually participate in these programs, uh, um, seek out participation in these programs. Medicare Shared Savings Program is another one that you might have heard of. Initiative for organizations to develop ACOs for Medicare patients and be paid via shared savings arrangements. Um, and after the first level of the program, participants are required to participate in shared risk arrangements with gradually increasing levels of downside risk. We're going to talk about ACOs a little bit uh, more here shortly. So we talk about population health. Um, this refers to the health outcomes of groups of individuals, including the distribution of such outcomes within the group. These groups are often geographic populations, such as nations or communities, but they can also be other groups, such as employees, ethnic groups, disabled persons, prisoners, or any other defined group, uh, an employer group. There are many health determinants or factors um, such as medical care systems, individual behavior, genetics, the social environment, physical environment. Each of these determinants has a biological impact on an individual and population health outcomes. So when we start to look at um, uh, quality measures and meeting quality measures, we look at those populations within our uh, practices. And again, it could be, uh, you know, that you group those together according to chronic illness, such as diabetes or hypertension, um, or that uh, you, you focus on um, some sociological, um, uh, psychosocial groups and things of that nature. Um, and the whole point for population health is to produce reproducible outcomes. You want to apply specific evidence-based interventions and treatments that result in desired or expected health outcomes. Now, this is not to say that everyone will achieve the same health status, but that you're utilizing interventions and treatments that have, uh, have been shown to provide a certain level of desired or expected health outcome. <clears throat> that way you can uh, apply it to the entire population, uh, your designated population. Now, um, alternative payment models is another term you've heard, APM. Um, according to CMS, an alternative payment model is a payment approach that gives added incentive payments to provide high quality and cost efficient care. APMs can apply to a specific clinical condition, a care episode, or a population. Um, so value-based care is under the umbrella of alternative payment models, essentially. Um, and this leads us to the definition of ACOs, accountable care organizations. These are generally defined as a group of healthcare providers, potentially including doctors, hospitals, health plans, and other healthcare constituents 
who voluntarily come together to provide coordinated, high-quality care to populations of patients. The goal is to ensure that patients and populations get the right care at the right time and without harm while avoiding care that has no proven benefit or represents an unnecessary duplication of services. In an ACO, patients are usually assigned a primary care physician who, in collaboration with the ACO, is responsible for managing all the care and costs for that patient. So when we talk about the unnecessary duplication of services, these are things that really um, uh, are, are solved, issues that are solved with good communication and good care coordination, such as you know, making sure that an x-ray or a lab result actually gets to the specialist uh, prior to or during the patient's first visit so that that first visit is meaningful and the specialist doesn't end up offering uh, or ordering the same test and, and having that redone and, and then, um, you know, creating a lag in time and, and spending more, more healthcare dollars. Now, we're back to attribution, and this is an important um, concept. This is the process that commercial and government payers use to assign patients to physicians who are held accountable for their care. So we just talked about that primary care physician, you know, kind of being the, the gatekeeper, right? The, the leader of the, uh, the care coordination team, right? Um, and so this assigns uh, patients to a specific physician or particular physician. This is really important because those lists will increasingly affect how much you are paid, regardless of whether or not the patient named on them are seen in your office. So understanding how attribution works is vital in order to succeed in the new payment environment. Knowing which patients are attributed to you by each payer and how value-based payment programs affect different segments of your patient population will help you target your healthcare team's resources more effectively. Fierce competition, declining reimbursement rates, intense regulations, administrative demands, and changing payment models have created serious challenges for independent physician practices. We have seen so many practices close or uh, become acquired by larger organizations. According to a physician's practice article that was posted a year ago, 5,000 independent physicians were acquired by, or in, independent practices, excuse me, were acquired by hospital systems um, in the last year, a year ago. Um, and the number of employed physicians grew by 14,000, and that was before COVID-19. Now, TMA is committed to helping physicians uh, physician practices remain independent by seizing this opportunity to innovate and take the lead in creating an environment in which patients are engaged, partnering with their physicians for better health, physicians and staff experiencing greater work satisfaction, and all within an economically viable construct. We take seriously the responsibility to provide the most up-to-date information on what is happening in the healthcare industry. So with that said, Keep an eye on the TMA Education Center website. There is more to come on value-based care. We are developing an education program specifically designed for smaller independent practices um, that will include information about the types of value-based care models out there and how to make the transition from fee-for-service to value-based care in your practice.
Thank you for your time and attention. I appreciate you. I wish you well. To claim CME for today's program, go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you and ask that you like and follow for future episodes. Until then, stay well.